We made this. Hello everyone, I'm Tony Black. And I'm Carl Sweeney. And welcome to The Discourse. Welcome back to The Discourse, guys. Your uh, weekly chat about all things TV, movies, culture, box office, etc. All this, all these things mixed into one. And uh, we've got a fairly normal episode of The Discourse uh, this week because we've had a few bonus episodes and whatnot. Um, you might have heard our royal chat yesterday about uh, H&M, Haz and Meg. And uh, now, we're <laughs> now we're back to talk some, uh, some normal stuff. But before we do, a uh, quick reminder, please do subscribe uh, on Twitter to us at Pod the Discourse uh, and drop us an email with your thoughts about what we're talking about and what you think at contactthediscourse at gmail.com. And, and also do, if you can, drop us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any of your podcast providers that um, that do that. And that'll help give us a bump and get more people listening to our, our, our stream of discourse. So thanks very much if you're doing that already. Carl, then, uh, you're going to start us off, aren't you, talking today about... Um, we've got a couple of things to talk about in terms of like HBO, Discovery, all of this this big media conglomerate. So why don't you kick us off talking about um, some of their shenanigans with some of their uh, their streaming services? Okay, so this is the news that multiple series uh, are being cut from the Warner Brothers Discovery-owned streaming service HBO Max. Uh, these series include Westworld, uh, The Nevers, Minx, and Love Life. Uh, so The Nevers is a fairly new show that I think that was cancelled halfway for its first season. Westworld, I think a lot of people will have, will have seen. I know you watched all that show, Tony. I watched the first mm-hmm. season and never got back to it. But the context here is that Warner Brothers Discovery has been cutting down on spending. Um, it's seeking to find, I think, several billion dollars in cost savings over the next several years. They've had some rough kind of earnings reports uh, recently, I think. So what removing some of these shows means is a few things. Firstly, they're able to save money because it means that any residuals that may be owed to cast and crew don't necessarily need to be paid in the same way. Um, obviously, there is money saved by not continuing with shows like The Nevers at all, you know, cutting down on production. Um, and then what has happened, you know, they, these shows disappeared, I think, for a few days, and then we got some clarity that many of them are actually being licensed to third-party services to... Mm. ad-supported streaming TV. So things like Amazon's uh, Freevee service, for example. So yeah. they'll also be saving some money or earning some money by licensing these titles out. So I just thought it was interesting because something like Westworld, I think, has been a big show. Maybe it didn't... I mean, you, you're a better place to comment on this than I am, but maybe it didn't fully deliver on its promise or become the big iconic show that maybe it seemed like for a moment it would. Um, but the idea that this could disappear, which is what it seemed like for a moment was quite concerning to people, wasn't it? It felt like this is the kind of thing that shouldn't really be happening in this day and age, didn't it? Well, no, and it and it will get people increasingly on the buy physical media train, you know, which, you know, I, I'm, I'm starting to adopt more and more as time passes, really. And although, at the same time, part of me thinks, yeah, it's great that we're, if we buy things on DVD or Blu-ray, but those platforms are not going to exist forever. And eventually the technology is going to outpace in some, maybe even the ability to play those discs, or they're going to deteriorate. So there's, the, you're never ever really going to be in a position where, you know, it, unless you have the capacity for, a, you know, a ton of hard drive space <laughs> and you can digitize everything, you know, you're never going to be in position really to own everything. We are quite reliant on streaming now. That's the reality of things. You know, that is the ultimate reality for the majority of stuff. So to actually take things away that 
art. Well, it, I think a lot of it, it, it is about it is about maximizing profits, isn't it? It's about them not wanting to pay residuals for shows that I think they think no one's going to watch. I mean, the thing with Westworld is that it that was a show that when it started was a huge big thing, you know, based on a property that people did know to an extent, you know, Michael Crichton based on the, you know, the film in the seventies, you know, quite well known. It had this massive prestige behind it, you know, JJ Abrams behind, you know, the creative thing, Jonathan Nolan, Anthony Hopkins in the cast, all this stuff. Right. And then, and then the problem with Westworld was that it very, very quickly became incredibly complicated in a way that made it actually less marketable and mass, appeal in that you know different in a different way from something like lost which was a lot more melodramatic and i think kept certain people for that side of things it still had a lot of human drama even while it was getting quite nutty and complicated and people did drop off of that westworld was both quite arch and emotionless and distancing and also incredibly hard for people to just jump in on and follow so by the time you got to the fourth season that actually tried to sort of go back a little bit to the beginning in some ways, and start tying things together, and then queued up a, a final series, which would have really taken everything back to the start, because that's what it essentially does by the end. It does, it would have, the whole fifth series would have been back in the Westworld, Western scenario of the 19th century. But by then, nobody was watching. I mean, if you look at the the actual statistics for the viewing figures, it literally falls off a cliff. And by the, by the fourth season, nobody is watching that show at all. So, Luckily, they ended that fourth season in a way that you you could end it there, and it's not too much of a oh my god, like that you can't do that. You know, everyone was like, yeah, fine, okay. There is another part of the story you could tell, but it's absolutely fine. You can imagine that. So I think a lot of it with that show is that they they are aware that it's not necessarily going to get people jumping on, and and also it's almost like a, I think it's almost like a catch twenty two though, Carl, in that. I don't know about you, if I find out a show's had two or three seasons and it's been cancelled, I won't start it because I don't think it's got an ending. Like I'm like, well, I'm not watching something for three series if it hasn't got a proper ending. I'm not doing that. So actually nowadays, I think streamers are in, in their best interests to actually wrap something up quite satisfactorily, even if they do like they did with Timeless on Netflix, where they do a two-part finale that wraps everything up because then they've got a whole package that they can say, this show has a beginning, middle and end, even if it doesn't last that long, it's worth doing. Do you know what I mean? Definitely, because I mean there are series like uh, Mindhunter, wasn't it? Um, which the David Fincher crime thing, which it only went for two seasons, but it felt to me like something that was, you know, could well have gone for five or six. And I was, oh yeah, I was it well was just gearing up. And, yeah, yeah, and then it was, suddenly it wasn't going to be made anymore. So I, I see where you're coming from. There's something interesting going on here with the streamers because I think the message to me is firstly, look, they can take things away as they see fit. So, like you said. Where possible, get hold of physical media, even if, you know, there might be some functional displacement. We might not have DVD and Blu-ray players uh, being produced for, uh, you know, for many years to come. But I think it, where possible, there's something you really cherish having a copy of it. There's, some, there's something really to say for that. Yeah, We're not living in I a agree. halcyon age where everything's going to be available. You know, it, in fact, actually, a lot of things are fading away from view, especially if you're people like us who don't just watch new stuff. I think if mm. actually the outlook for a lot of older films and series is not always particularly good. But there's something mm. broader going on, I think. Did you see the recent case of... Um, are you familiar with the series Lilyhammer? 
Uh, I've not seen it, but I know of it. Yeah. So, Wasn't that the first Netflix show ever sort of made in a way? It was their first original series, yeah. So Lily yeah. Hammer, it was with um, Steve Van Zandt, uh, Steve Van Zandt, who you will know from The Sopranos, but yeah. um, I, I always think of him as he's a key member of Bruce Springsteen's uh, E Street Band. Yeah. But, um, yeah. He also yeah. did some acting. But he played a mobster who had to relocate to Norway after he went into the mm. Witness Protection Program. It was quite, it's quite a decent series. I watched, I watched some of it. But recently it was reported that that series would be going off Netflix because a 10-year um, licensing agreement ah. was lapsing or something. And there was a bit of it. That, that series actually does have a bit of a fan base. And um, when they got wind of this, there was a little bit of a sort of campaign. And then Netflix closed the last-minute deal to keep streaming it. But had oh, that okay. not happened, it would have just disappeared. And like we say, it's um, quite a notable series. You know, historically, as their first-ever original series... That has quite an interesting place in in TV and streaming history. So yeah, these things can go away, and I think in the coming years we'll see further examples of this. That things will drop out of view, and maybe they'll resurface in other guises, like we're saying with some of these HBO Max things, and maybe they won't. And I don't know. It's kind of worrying that something could just drop away like that. So, mm. but you, but I what you're know. also seeing in this example though is that they they're they're going to be put on services where you have to watch ads. Yeah, you know where you have that ad insertion. That and so in a way, it's more like watching TV. It's more like watching a broadcast channel that isn't like the BBC. That is it. it where you know, if you watch anything on freebie, and sometimes I do, because actually they do license a lot of these channels now, or, or something like Plex. You know, is similar. They're actually licensing good movies. You know, it's not like they're just full of trash. They do have things on there that you actually might not get streaming elsewhere. And and sometimes I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. They've got that. But then you have to watch a bunch of ads. I did it the other week. I was watching something on there. And there were so many ads, you know, constantly. So it's a bit like what what we're... Everyone is still paying for these services. You're still paying for your HBO Maxes. You know, you're still paying for Prime and all this stuff. But what, you, what I'm worried is going to happen is that some of this more interesting stuff that isn't the new things that they're trying to grab audiences and make their money off is going to end up on these sort of third-party streamers but also advert streamers and that we're going to end up going back to that kind of system where that's the other way they're making money through making us sit and watch ads we don't want <laughs> and that and you know what i mean and that and because the whole streaming revolution a lot of it was based around the excitement of oh thank god we don't have to wait through advertisements anymore we don't have to you know but what they've realized is they can't make the money they were through yeah. that model because because and you know all this stuff about our netflix and we talked about it recently are offering this ad-free tier. No one's going to give a shit. Yeah, you know, no, no one. Everyone would go. I'll, I'll pay an extra couple of quid uh, in order to, you know, actually avoid that stuff. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. people. I don't necessarily think that they that they can ever through normal streaming going to make money through advertising. They're going to have to do it via this kind of <clears> method where they take stuff that you might find interesting, stick it on there, and go. Well, that's the only way you're going to watch it, basically. And the more these things become less available on uh, physical media the more we might end up trapped in this kind of model, especially for interesting stuff. I mean, not not stuff like The Nevers, because that was shit. Did you ever watch that one? <laughs> no, I didn't, know. Like, it was rubbish. And, I, and I, I'm pretty sure there's still half a season of that still to air, but nobody gives a toss. <laughs> and not even because Joss Whedon was involved and he went, you know, off a cliff. Yeah. It wasn't very good anyway, so. I think the pattern we might see is that all the power will be concentrated ultimately in the hands of a few big players, you know, in the streaming mm. world. Um, and I think... I'm speculating, but I think some of the sort of smaller smaller fish in the sea will fall to the wayside. So who's mm. going to be left standing? It'll be people like Netflix, Disney, Amazon, yep. won't it? And that, what's interesting yep. about what you're saying is almost that 
it seems like the old school TV model in some ways is resurfacing, doesn't it? Like the um, mm. prominence of adverts, the fact that increasingly some of these new series are going to weekly releases again, aren't they? Whereas, you know, that seemed to be something we turned away from. We'd all gone to um, everything being out on the same day. But, you know, streamers like Apple very frequently have stuff uh, week to week, don't they? Mm-hmm. Which I think works well with series like Bad Sisters, for example, which I talked about yeah. earlier this year. Um, Severance. Severance. With yeah. Severance. Yeah. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. But yeah, I think <laughs> I'm a bit unnerved by some of these developments, even if... Because yeah. the thing about the Westworld is, um, okay, you can watch it with ads, but that's is it, it didn't air with ads originally, did it? No, did it just air as one continuous. No, no. no, so so it's, I it's, think so. It's kind of second yeah. best, isn't it? So yeah. mm. I don't know whether it was it was aired on HBO in America and it had ads and things like that. And actually, I suppose it was aired, it would have been aired in um, on Sky over here and it would have had ads. But loads of people are watching the services like Now TV or whatever, where you wouldn't have the ads involved. So I think it's um, it's most people would rather watch it on another platform where you don't have the ads and and i think so yeah um so now that'll be interesting to see develop while we're on the subject of like hbo and the bigger warner brothers discovery thing uh how much have you been tracking all of the superman dc discourse carl this week because there's been some interesting developments there yeah so i did read an article about this because it was um i when i wake up i normally have a look at the bbc news app and i scrolled down that front page on whatever day it was that the news broke and it Got its own article that Henry Cavill wasn't being re- retained as Superman anymore. So yeah, I know you're going to fill in all the blanks for us, but uh, I was surprised by that because I felt like I had heard something that he had cameo. I don't want to spoil things, but I had heard that he had cameoed in another big movie this year, which seemed to be kind of a precursor to obviously more to come. So what's going on? The rug's been pulled out from underneath him, is it? Well, it's, it, it, it seems that way. So he a few weeks ago announced that he was coming back to play Superman again. And as you say, I think it was, uh, and spoilers if you don't want to know, skip ahead maybe 10 seconds, I think it was the film Black Adam where he appears in a cameo. And I haven't seen Black Adam yet. And I, I will, because I've got it available on a streaming thing I, I watched. So, I might so, watch so Christmas. that reaction video we talked um, about though, that that was the guy, that was what the guy was reacting to, wasn't it? Which we kind of talked yeah, around yeah. On, the, on the discourse when we talked about that. Yeah. But that guy going well over the top was uh, going yeah. mad about the... Superman appearance, yeah. Superman. Oh, Superman! Yeah! All this kind of stuff. So, um, Cavill says he's coming back to play Superman, which a lot of people, I think, were quite happy about because I think there is a lot of goodwill towards his Superman person. I've I've never been super fussed, but he's not bad, but I've, ne- I ne- I've never thought he's a perfect fit for it anyway. So I was a bit like, oh, fine, okay. Um, but then, in the ensuing weeks, there has been a new team who've taken over, and we talked about this not so long back, a new team who've taken over DC Films, head- headed by James Gunn the filmmaker who made Guardians of the Galaxy and the Suicide Squad. And in recent weeks, they have been, and it's all part of this big, you know, merger and this big discovery reshuffle, you know, headed by David Zaslav in America and all this kind of stuff. And we've talked a bit about that before, but um, they've, they, they, they are trying to get their shit together with DC. They're aware that the, the, the Snyderverse has been an absolute fucking mess that has caused all <laughs> kinds of, you know, let's, let's face it, it has. And crucially, they haven't had, the critical appreciation that Marvel particularly have had, as well as that fact their universe has naturally organically built and it's become this big pop culture thing. DC has been all over the place. So what they're trying to do, and I think they've got a decent chance of it happening with someone like James Gunn at the helm, who is a storyteller, who does love this stuff, who is capable of creating, I think, something quite different from Marvel because he's got a different sensibility. As much as he's played in the Marvel sandbox, 
you know, you only have to look at the Guardians films to see how he could be a little bit more offbeat, which is exactly what the DC films should be. They shouldn't be like Marvel. They are weirder. They are darker. You need a universe that rep- reflects that. Not this grim, dark, intense, pummeling Snyder stuff. Not that, but something, you know, dark, but elegant and interesting. And I think he could do that. So he's come in and he's gone, right, do we want, do we want to do any of this stuff that they're already doing? Probably not, I think. And I think they've essentially said, we need to start again from the beginning. So there's talk about how they're going to try and integrate Robert Pattinson's Batman into things. I think because the Batman by Matt Reeves did so well Mm -hmm. and was very critically regarded. Good move, I think, in that score. But I think they've basically turned around to Cavill and said, we're going to start again. And the rumour is that Gunn is going to maybe, I think, write and direct his own Superman movie, um, which I think is very interesting, really. I think that could be fascinating. But they're they're in. Th- I think they're gonna they're gonna get a whole new Superman, you know, to start off with. Um, so Cavill's kind of been left by the wayside, and and the knock on effect is that he'd he'd come out of the Witcher TV series because he was thought he was gonna do Superman again, and now he can't go back to the Witcher because they've recast him with ah, right. bargain basement Liam Hemsworth, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is a bit of a shame, really, because I bet the people at the Witcher are going, oh, for fuck's sake, we didn't have to get this no mark in, we could have kept with Cavill, um, so. You know, they're probably kicking themselves. So he's sort of been left out in the cold, really. And I think, but but at the same time, uh, apparently now he's going to go off and do Warhammer because he's a big Warhammer nerd and this kind of thing. So I'm sure Henry Cavill will be fine. But I th- but the interesting thing more so, I think, is that the intent to create something completely new. But uh, one person it has pissed off, I think, is The Rock. I've um, heard about this. So he's unfollowed a couple of accounts. Yeah. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's he's unfollowed the Black Adam and <laughs> Discovery Instagram accounts. And everyone's going, oh, what does this mean? Well, what it means is that Black Adam underperformed. Everyone said yeah. it's a bit shit. And, and, and in a way, I feel a bit sorry for him because I think he genuinely loved that doing that film and he genuinely loves Black Adam <laughs> yeah. and he genuinely thought that it was going to be this massive sensation. And everyone's gone, nah, you're all right. Um, so I think, uh, so I think what will be interesting to see is that they're going to tie up certain loose ends. They're not going to do a Wonder Woman three again. Don't really think it's a big loss to be honest. I thought those films, well, I thought the first Wonder Woman was pretty good. All right. Yeah. Second one was a bit rubbish. I'm not that fussed. I think they could get a start again with Wonder Woman and do that. Their Aquaman two is coming out, but the rumor is that they're going to sack that off after that. And Jason Momoa is going to play Lobo, which is another character in the DC verse. Um, so I think it's all change and, and I actually think good because I think the whole the whole formation of what we have right now with DC is not as good as it could be so I'm all for them clearing the decks and going right we've got a good Batman let's get good other stuff mm. and do this properly so how is this going down with people because I, I, I feel like I've just skated over a few discussions of this and seen people saying things like you know I'm talking about fans really but you know, I've put in all this time and effort into these earlier films and it's all for nothing. And I was kind of thinking, well, if you enjoyed those films in their own right, then, you know, that, surely that's enough. But is this a kind of a comic book fan type thing where it's all going to lead to a bigger crossover or something? And, you know, is it does it feel to people like it's unfulfilled potential? Is that how people are taking it? Or are people generally quite excited about this as a development? I don't think they're excited yet because I don't think they're looking at it from the rational point of view that someone like me or you would be. <laughs> And thinking, actually, like, we might end up with something better at this if they've properly thought it through and they've got a real plan and they execute it properly with good filmmakers who genuinely are are singing from the same hymn sheet, which is exactly what Marvel have done. And for all of the accusation about, you could say, oh, Marvel, just they do all the same things all the time. 
the truth is Marvel have a very successful formula that is continuing to be successful, even if I think they've had a bit of a rough year this year in terms of you know qu- quality. I think people are very invested immediately in what's in front of them, and particularly comic book fans. And I, you know, I'm not that kind of person. You know, I like that stuff. I don't love that stuff. You know, I am I'm much more excited about you know Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon next year than I am, you know. Four seven, do you know, what I mean? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Um, so I think in, if you're in that fandom, there is there is a frustration, you know, that oh well, this is all being cut off in its prime. These people had places, and and also that underlying that underlying Snyderverse, you know, restore the Snyderverse thing. You still got that cult of group who seem to think that you know that Justice League re-edit was the best thing since sliced bread. That four hour fucking re-edit I thing. That we I had still haven't watched through. that yet. But, uh, oh my God. Okay. Well, you know what? It's better than the first one. It is better than that hodgepodge that he did. Uh, yeah. In fairness, Snyder had to leave that for tragic reasons. I'm not yeah, saying that. Yeah. But that hodgepodge that, that Whedon ended up doing. You know, Snyder's made a better film. But it's four hours. <laughs> oh. You don't need to watch it, Carl. Trust me. Okay, you really don't. There's lots of other things you can do with your life. So I think there's a lot of people still in that zone that feel that Cavill still had, particularly Cavill, still had a bit of a way to go. And I can see that. You know, I, I think I think he, he didn't get the good material that he could have got. I think he could he could have been better with better material. So I understand that on that level. But at the same time, I understand starting again, really. Christopher Reeve was an iconic Superman, wasn't he? I, th- I don't think Henry Cavill ever got to that level for, to the general public for me. You know, I might, I might be off base, but I just don't think he sort of reached that that level in the popular consciousness. So mm. on that level, it sounds to me like a bit like he's been fucked around, though, with um, yeah. recent commitments and all of that. I but think so. In terms of yeah. as an actual film, I don't think it's a huge loss necessarily, as much as he was fine, you know. I think, well, a few people have said, oh, maybe you can go and play Bond now. <laughs> so he's so 39 isn't he so they said they were going to yeah. cast somebody in their 30s so he's, he's the right age right on the cusp mm. yeah i think i think he, i think you might be about the right age um although the rumor is not to get well okay i was gonna say not to get into bond discourse but we always bond talk about corner bond. here's bond corner bond corner, bond corner um the big bookies rumor lately has been aaron taylor johnson then if you've seen that i have seen that and i've also seen the rumor that he has filmed the gun barrel sequence as a kind of a test Ooh. have you heard that but I never I know whether no. to, never know whether to trust these things when they come up because they normally originate in the tabloids and there mm. are one or two tabloid journalists who have a good track record when it comes to stories about Bond. But I'm always a bit what? wary until something's officially confirmed. Baz um, ba- Baz Bam Bam Bigoy, I think he's from, quite he, he gets quite a lot of scoops. He doesn't does, he? doesn't he? Yeah, I'm not sure if this he, one originated from him or from somebody else, but yeah, Taylor Johnson would be an interesting choice. I don't think he would be the most interesting choice. I mean, we've talked about this before, but that wouldn't scream out to me like bold new direction, at least off uh, at the face of it, mm. on the face of it. Yeah. What, what do you think? Same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I have to say, and it's a very, very different part, but he was one of the only things I liked about Bullet Train this summer. And he's got a bit, he had a bit of swagger in that and a bit of, you know, danger. And for the first time, I actually thought, hey, you know what, right? You know, not, I didn't immediately go Bond in my head, but thinking about it, I was like, you know, well, you know, maybe. maybe. He might have a little bit of the swagger and, you know, charm. So, you know, I'm not c- convinced. He wouldn't be my number one <laughs> choice, but yeah. you know, I couldn't understand him being in the conversation. Mm. But I, I, I'd love to see him give it to, Ca- I'd, I'd happily have to Henry Cavill. I think, I think he'd do a great job. Well, I suppose he was in the Man from Uncle film, wasn't he? And that was mm. like very suave and debonair, wasn't it? And I quite like that mm. movie. So I suppose if that was his audition in some ways, perhaps I can see it. Yeah. 
And he's proven he can do action. Like, I mean, look, you only have to look at Mission, Mission Impossible. Impossible yeah. He's brilliant in that. You know, he's proper beefed up and he's so, yeah, we'll see. But um, but yeah, the DC stuff will will rumble on. And I, th- I think in January, we're going to get more of a, a indication of what they're going to start, what the first steps of this are going to be. I think they'll try and do it a bit like Marvel have and go, right, well, here's a slate for two years. These are the movies we're going to make, you know, as part of building up to a, Maybe another Justice League or maybe some sort of event movie. I think that's absolutely what they'll be trying to do. And, and you know, it'd be really interesting to see them right, try and rival Marvel in that way and see if they can create something, you know, uh, in similar lines. But uh, I think the climate's very different in this day and age. And I think it, I don't think they'll ever be able to do what Marvel did. But time will tell, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. So why don't we finish this one off then by talking a little bit about what we've been watching. So, um... Why don't you kick us off, Carl? What have you been watching lately? Well, I'm going to kick us off with something that I know we both have watched. And I think we teed this up on an earlier episode, which is the film Jeanne d'Elman, which we <laughs> talked about on a, a previous episode. So yeah, you've seen yeah, that. Yeah, you've yeah. seen it all, haven't you? I'm not wrong. I that. have. Yep. I have. That was that was an interesting five days. <laughs> well, there we go. I, I did want to bring that point up, actually, because Jeanne d'Elman, which is 201 minutes long. And I yeah. firstly want to claim some credit for watching it all in one sitting. Because I think you watched mm. it in chunks, didn't you? But I did it properly, Tony, yeah. first of all. <laughs> um, yeah, fair play to you, yeah. <laughs> it's not easy to do, but that, you know, there was a day when I was alone in the house for a few hours and um, it was like then or never. I was never going to get a chance to watch it all in one go, apart from that moment, probably. So I, I took the plunge. Yeah. So just to recap, this is the film, uh, the 1970s film from the Belgian director Chantal Ackerman, which recently was acclaimed as the number one film of all time on the Sight and Sound Critics Poll 2022, which we did a whole episode about, uh, as we have, you know, as I said last last uh, yesterday, this, that was our most popular episode to date. So go back and check that out if you're listening to this but haven't uh, heard that episode. So what about the film? So the film is about a stay-at-home... Uh, well, she's kind of a house... She's a widowed housewife, isn't she? Jeanne Elman, who's also working as a sex worker... And it, the film tracks her life over three days in very kind of minute detail, doesn't it? So you see her making food, you see her cleaning and going to the shops and et cetera, et cetera. It seems like nothing much is happening in terms of dramatic events, but that's not the full story because actually the picture changes quite late on in the film, doesn't it? So, but just go into it knowing that you're going to watch kind of an observational piece about the life of a woman who, um, you know, a domestic woman who whose son comes to visit and does sex work in the afternoons and it's all about that. Okay. So whilst this film wouldn't be in my top 10 films of all time, I did think it was excellent. I will say I felt it made actually quite a powerful feminist statement. I think all that mundanity we're talking about, because it is very mundane. I felt that like that was very deliberate. I think what Ackerman was trying to say, or I assume what she was trying to say was this is what life feels like to a lot of women who are, you know, who stay at home, who are sort of imprisoned in that domestic environment. And I think the visual style made quite a potent contrast. It sort of played to that point, and it made quite an interesting contrast to sort of mainstream ways that women are filmed. So, you know, there's an absence of things like close-ups. The camera is always fixed. There isn't camera movement. The acting style is very de-dramatised. So I think all of that was for a point. I I think all of that was to make a feminist statement. And I found the overall experience of watching it quite hypnotic, to be honest. And I felt like the time both expanded and contracted, like I say, watching it in one sitting. But 
it felt like a long, long time watching it. And then there were moments where time almost seemed to come in on itself. So the film ends with a seven minute unbroken shot. But when I found out that it was seven minutes, when I was reading some stuff afterwards, I was a bit surprised. I could have sworn it was only two or three minutes, you know, so it felt like time had kind of shifted around, around me. And I think because of the style of it, because it's a very low key narrative to say the least, what that means is that even the most minute of changes starts to feel quite momentous. So like, there's a moment where she doesn't immediately answer the doorbell, which doesn't sound like a dramatic incident by any means. But in that context, you start to think, hey, hang on, what's up here? What's going on? So I found a lot to sort of in- enjoy is the wrong word because it, it it's almost not designed to be enjoyable, it seems like to me. A lot to appreciate here, to be honest, Tony. So um, how did you take it? I, I found it very interesting in a way that, I mean, it's one of those things that I, I would never probably have watched this if it wasn't for the fact it was where it is in that poll, really. I mean, or, or I would have done, it would have been much, much later in my life, you know, because I think in the end, I, I'm, you know, I really do want to watch a lot of these proclaimed greatest movies ever made, but I really am taking my time with it in in the hopes that I live a decently long life, <laughs> like fingers crossed, <laughs> you know, I'll get out of my forties because I might not get them watched. Um, but like, you know, I, um, I don't think it would have been that much of a watch, you know, immediately. But I, 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 I did. Did I enjoy it? I, I pre. Yes, sort of. Like, <laughs> it's hard to describe because it, it's, it wasn't a film that I, I would probably watch again realistically, unless it was for a reason. You know, it certainly isn't something you can throw on in the background. But weirdly, in a way, you may, you almost could because it is that hypnotic sense of, you know, all the things you've talked about there, and how it it does sort of play and it, it draws you in and it, it it's because it's such an unusual film. It, it, it is, it's not a documentary because it's almost too stylized visually to be a documentary. But at the same time, it, it's just observing a woman. It's observing a life. It's a, it's a fishbowl lens on, on somebody going through their life. And it's in, in that way, it's, it's really, it, it, it does entrance you in a strange way, you know, and her performance is, is marvelous. Um, in it, the woman playing the playing Jian, it, it's it's she's absolutely brilliant because she has very little dialogue, and it, it is all in the way she walks, in the way she she looks, in the way that she just goes about very routine tasks. You know, I mean, beforehand, I did laugh at a tweet that's you know there were people talking about it, and uh, somebody described I don't know who it was, but they just described it as uh, interminable, <laughs> and he said he said she she literally spent there's a whole scene where she makes veal, and he's. <laughs> His point was just that why are we watching a woman make veal? You know, just and I was like, well, that's the point though. In that it is, it is observing someone going through these these tasks who is in a loop of her life that she's that he's destroying her. You know, and 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 I I did think that, and I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but at the end there is a scene that makes complete sense. Yet he's still really shocking, and and I. I was genuinely surprised by it, especially after the three hours of build-up you've had. And I thought that that takes some skill to do. That takes some creative skill to do. So while I wouldn't, I don't think it's the best film ever made. I think I think its placement is not really for me. It's not right, to be honest. I do see why this a has had a real resurgence, but also why it's what why why it's there because of in terms of how it's made it's fascinating it's fascinating so 
it's a proper mission to do it. Like you've really got to invest <laughs> and, and, and spend the time and accept that you're going to watch very, very little on, a, on an actual narrative level happening. So I think there's actually quite a powerful symbolism to this film knocking Vertigo off the top of that list, I think. Because Vertigo, in a way, in some senses, is almost the ultimate expression of the idea of the male gaze. You know, the narrative is about that, mm. the way it's filmed, it very much plays into that. And I don't think it's an unproblematic, you know, I don't think it's a straightforward case of male objectification, because I think actually there's a lot of self-questioning going on there as well. But I think it it's almost the ultimate male gaze film in, in a certain sense. And the way this is filmed, I think to sort of appreciate it, you almost have to take it on the level of film theory, because one of the things Sight and Sound did was um, they published an article by Laura Mulvey uh, when this film was announced as number one. And she was, you know, she's the scholar who's associated with the idea of the male gaze from her essay, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema. So it's almost like if you were designing a film that was going to run against the idea of the male gaze, you would do it like this. Because Mulvey said you have to turn away from the mainstream and you have to sort of turn more towards the avant-garde. And I think in terms of visual style, that's what's happening here is it doesn't do the things that a Hollywood film would do to objectify women. Like I say, it doesn't isolate parts of the woman's body in close-ups to fetishize them and so on and so forth. So I think almost to really appreciate it, I think it's not an accessible film in that sense. You sort of, it helps if you have some grounding in these ideas around film and feminism and things that it's playing with, I, I felt like. So um, I'm very glad I saw it, I will say that. I think I do think it is a great film, and I can almost understand it as a totem. You know, I can understand its placement on the list as a kind of a tot- as a as symbolic of kind of an anti-male gaze cinema. I think that's partly what accounts mm. for that placing on the list. Let me give you one more what I've been watching, which is The White Lotus, which um, has just come to the end of its second season. So this is Mike White's comedy drama series uh, set in the White Lotus hotel chain, which is like a luxury hotel complex. Um, have you seen any mm. of this, Tony? Do you know much about this? No, my wife's watching it. No, and mm. she's, she said that she's enjoying it. So, yeah. Okay, so the first season was set in Hawaii. The second one that's just concluded was set in Italy. The basic premise is, it's not fully a murder mystery as such, but the basic premise in both series is that you know somebody has died at the outset, but then the full picture doesn't emerge at once. It takes a long time until you know exactly what has happened, what's transpired. So the first series was more about wealth, I think, in terms of the the, the main theme it was playing with, whereas this second one seemed to me to shift the focus more onto sex and relationships. So I think it you know, the second season definitely stood alongside the first. And to be honest, I found myself a bit more interested in, in season two. So great cast. You know, you have people in there like F. Murray Abraham and Aubrey Plaza, Michael Imperioli, uh, Jennifer Coolidge, who I think was in the first season as well. And it's kind of the role of a lifetime for her, I think. Lots of other people too, lots of others. The characters I felt like were extremely well observed. And it's a very clever series in terms of when it gives you information and when it doesn't. So um, in particular, one, you know, the Aubrey Plaza storyline has kind of a, there's a bit of absent information there, which I think will be debated for a long time in terms of where that storyline ends up to. And I love that. There's really stuff to chew over in there. And um, yeah, no, I would really recommend this. I think it ended in a place that felt right to me. So not all of the characters come out of it well. Some, some of them did. There's kind of a certain bleakness to how some of the storylines ended up, but in a way that rang quite artistically true to me. Um, I think above all, what I appreciated was it was a series that 
you know, these characters were multifaceted, they were complex, they you couldn't easily categorize them a lot of the time. And as absurd as some of what happens was, it almost it felt quite real to me in a way that a lot of series don't. So I enjoyed this a hell of a lot. So season three, there is going to be season three. It's it's mooted to be set in Asia and it may take quite a different tack again. So I can't wait for that. And the other interesting thing is that the series really did start to feel like an event. So um, ratings for it really shot up in the last few episodes, apparently. So it seems like it's really mm. kind of built an audience in this second season. So I'd recommend it. Yeah, I, I will get to it eventually. Yeah, definitely. Because multiple people have said similar things. So no, that's interesting. Yeah, that inter- that's interesting. Like I said, my wife's enjoying it. So yeah, definitely we'll get to that. Um, I'm, I'm going to give you one uh, before we yep. go. And this is a series that is coming back in the new year, a British show that for years people have been telling me is one of the best things ever made. <laughs> and my wife has been saying, you need to watch it. You need to watch it. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And finally... Finally, we sat down to watch Happy Valley by Sally Wainwright. Have you ever seen Happy Valley, Carl? No, I haven't. But I've had similar, you know, yearnings to watch it like you and just never got around to it. And then when I saw that there's a third series starting on New Year's Day, isn't it? I, I kind of am thinking I'll try to watch it before then. So it's on the agenda. Yes, I, I'm very interested to hear your little review of it here. Yeah. Well, can confirm that it is genuinely an absolute masterpiece. That first season anyway. I've I've watched one out of the two. There's there's six episodes apiece, so it doesn't take very long. And I it is it has been it's billed as like northern British noir, modern noir in many ways. And absolutely fits that bill. And I thought it was so, so good. I can't even begin to tell you. Sarah Lancashire is just astonishing in that show. Everyone involved is brilliant. You know, James Norton, who plays one of the worst human beings I think I've ever seen put on screen, he's he's fantastic. Like and but she is truly fantastic. Like it, 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 she is. There is there are no no awards that they shouldn't throw at her for that performance, because it, it, it you see over six so much happens, Carl, in six episodes. It's it's an absolute masterclass in how to t- both tell a story and also have incredible character development across six episodes. You know, it should be it should, if I was if I was teaching how to write drama that would be on my syllabus, Happy Valley Season 1. I don't know about Season 2 yet, but I've heard it's equally as good. But it, it is it is essentially about a... It's set in a northern, a small northern town in England, and Sarah Lancashire plays a, a police officer whose daughter hung herself because she was raped by Norton's character, who was in jail for something else, and she's never, ever got over this death, basically. And then he's released... And at the same time, there's a big then plot about a, a kidnapping that, that's happening. And it all, it all starts to come together. But steadily, her her rage grows for this guy being out. And it builds and builds and builds and builds. And it's a, it's just fantastic. Truly, truly fantastic. And it, and amazingly, it ends uh, on a point they could have ended the show. You know, <laughs> even though they, they you can see the doors open for where they can go with it. It's so it's a told story in six episodes. So I was really surprised that it didn't end on a massive cliffhanger. Um, so on that basis as well, it's superb. Like uh, so, I'm really looking forward to season two, which we're going to do before the new series. Um, and th- it's been massively anticipated. You know, there was there was a two year gap between seasons one and two, but now there's been something like a seven year gap between two and three. So I'm I'm going to come back to on the discourse in in 2023 and talk about season three and what I thought of season two, but. All I can say is, Carl, if you can squeeze it in, I massively recommend it based mm. on that first season. 
Marvellous. Yeah. So two seasons of six episodes, so 12 hours. Um, yeah, I'll try to watch this before the new season then, because I've got some time off work now over Christmas and should be able to watch a bit more than I have been recently. So yeah, I will yeah. do my utmost and then we can talk about season three, can't Great. we? So yeah. Yeah, I'll, we can. Uh, you, won't re- you won't be disappointed, I tell you. Yeah, no, everything I've heard is that it's excellent. So I fully believe yeah. that. So yeah, good to know. Cool. Yeah, well, that's a, a fun recommend. Couple of recommendations to go into uh, the, uh, the the Christmas period. Hopefully, um, you're all uh, off work or you're having a bit of an easier time with the run up to the Christmas holidays. So we're going to be back for um, a few more specials, aren't we? We've got a, a whole episode coming in the next couple of days on Avatar Two. Yeah, because we'll both have watched that by then. As as of recording, you've watched it and I haven't. So <laughs> we were we're saving all of our discourse for that episode. We're going to bring you a, a Christmas special as well, um, which is going to be uh, obviously all about Christmas TV and Christmas movies and things like that. So we're going to do that. Uh, and then we are going to be, over the New Year period, bringing you our, uh, speaking of Jeanne Dillman, our, um, our top 10 films that we think would have been on our sight and sound list. So there's still a few things to come before 2023, Carl, isn't there? So that'll be fun. Yeah, we wanted to keep putting the episodes out there because, you know, I think actually during the festive period, a lot of people will be kicking around the house and I think people will still be listening to podcasts, won't they? So, yeah, we wanted to keep the discourse yeah. going, even if we're not doing traditional discourse episodes necessarily, but we want to keep, you know, people entertained and, uh, you know, I think it's a good time at the end of the year to reflect on certain things, isn't it? And like you say, the, the sequel to the highest grossing film of all time, that can't go without... You know, us chucking in our opinions, can it? So, <laughs> plenty to come on the yeah. discourse still for the remainder of the year. You're right. Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, we'll be back for Avatar Chat very soon. But until then, thanks for listening, guys. And we'll see you soon. See you soon, everybody. Bye. Hello, everyone. This is Tony Black, co-host and producer of You Have Been Watching, a podcast all about British sitcoms. Myself and co-host Robert Turnbull take you on a range of Britcom subjects and shows in our discussions, including greats such as Faulty Towers. Basil, in, in the same way as, as David Brent and uh, Alan Partridge and Victor Meldrew, Basil works best when he is actually dealing with arseholes. Lesser known curios such as 15 Stories High. There are all these kind of like gag setups being put in place. Uh, in that episode and then the, the sort of the end like minute or so is basically the payoff to all of these gags and it's very very sitcomy and even top tens such as sitcom theme tunes if we have to put composers of theme tunes in context for british sitcoms i think ronnie hazelhurst he's, he's possibly the john williams of i was just gonna say he is that he is the john williams yeah. of I think of, I think uh, he is. We're available on all podcast platforms and on social media at YHB Watching Pod on Twitter and Facebook. So please subscribe, get in touch, and come and have a laugh with us. Yeah.